Hey there, welcome back to the conversation, or welcome to the conversation. I'm sorry, we're just getting started today. I'm Brooke Thomas, filling in for Jenks tonight, and all week I've been, and it's been a great week. I just have to say, Bart, just what's what was with that music? Is it because I'm from Oklahoma? It wasn't. He's shaking his head. No. Okay. So it was just a personal choice. It was just, okay. All right. All right. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I just like to play around. All right. We have. Uh, Two guests today, we have a congressional candidate and we have a film director. So let's get right into it and introduce you to our first guest, Isaiah James, Democratic, excuse me, Democratic candidate for New York's 9th District. Isaiah, good evening. Good evening, Brooke. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Let's get right into it. Why are you running for Congress? Uh, I'm running for Congress because the problems that are facing my community and the country, to be frankly, can't wait any longer to be addressed. I mean, we have corporate politicians on both sides of the aisle who have forgotten the people they were elected to serve. So I think it's incumbent upon my generation, this generation, to step up and say, we're no longer going to accept the things we cannot change. We are here to change the things that we cannot accept. So let's talk about uh, politicians, because in your opinion, why does Yvette Clark, uh, Congresswoman, need to go? (laughs) Well, right now, who's sitting in this seat is Aetna. Affleck, Chase Manhattan. Oh, I see what but, you're doing. Uh-huh. Exactly. So mm-hmm. those are that's who actually running this seat right now. But Yvette Clark is there. She needs to go because she gives those corporations a seat at the table. In one breath, she'll raise her hand and say she's for protecting immigrant rights. Yet she takes more money from Amazon than any other congressional delegate from New York. And everybody knows that Amazon provides the technology that ICE uses to round up people in our country. She says she's for affordable health care or for Medicare for all. Her biggest donors are the pharmaceutical company and the insurance lobby. So like my grandmother used to always say, you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. Either you're going to serve the people or you're going to serve corporations. And I, I side with the people every day. I want to touch more on that. Uh, you mentioned Amazon. We're talking corporations. You mentioned Amazon because I read a really cool Intercept article about you today, and um, there's some sort of disputed exchange between you and Congresswoman Clark about Amazon, right? Yes. I, as a part of my activism work, I went with a group called Indivisible Nation BK, Brooklyn, to her office to meet with her last January. And my part of that meeting was to get Congresswoman Clark to then, when Amazon was still in the throes of trying to get a deal, was to come out publicly against it. Congresswoman Clark looked at me just like I'm looking at the viewers and told me she never signed a letter asking Amazon to come to this city. Now, this letter is, it's public, it's known. And I pushed back on her respectfully. She said, don't go telling people that I signed that letter. So either Congresswoman Clark has no idea what she's signing or she lied directly to my face. Either way, it's not a good look for a congressional representative. I want to talk more about you. I want to talk about you, your po- the policies that are important to you, your platform. And affordable housing is a big part of your platform, am I right? Absolutely. I, I mean, th- these are, everything that's in my platform are lived experiences for me. Mm-hmm. And at one point, my family was homeless. I'm son of Jamaican immigrants. I'm one of 11 children. And we grew up very, very, very poor. My father came to Brooklyn in the 70s to pick apples in upstate New York. And when I look at what's happening to my community with, in terms of housing, it is a shame. New York is one of the richest cities in the world. And the fact that we have whole neighborhoods being bought up by greedy developers and those houses being razzed and flipped and people who have grown up in these communities can't afford to live there anymore. 
This is unacceptable in our community. And this is unacceptable in the richest nation on earth. We spend $700 billion on defense. There's no way you can tell me we can't afford to build affordable housing in America. And one reason we're not building affordable housing is the Faircloth Amendment, which says that the federal government, HUD, cannot use funds to build new affordable housing. That is insane. Why is that amendment, why is that amendment allowed to pass? Mm-hmm. And why is that amendment still standing? That, so I want to talk more on this because he, here in Los Angeles, there's something that, and, I, and I'm sure this is happening also in New York, but here in Los Angeles, something that's going on, um, these new uh, group like pod sharing kind of living situations. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's, it'll be like a big building and everyone yes. shares a pod and they're also quite expensive, but I've seen politicians celebrating them as innovative and you could look at it that way. You could also look at it as a horror show. That this innovation is only necessary because people can't live, can't afford to live in their own apartment with their own bathroom at the very least, their own bedroom, their own uh, living area, their own four walls. And it's like, you know, I wish instead of smiling and encouraging this innovation, there was something hardcore happening to create more housing, real housing opportunities for human beings. And what else can be done? Well, for me, well, my platform, what I'm bringing to Congress, should I get elected, is I want to start a federally funded community land trust program, Mm -hmm. which guarantees that homeowners, when they sell their houses, it guarantees those houses are affordable for the next person who would buy it. I also want to start something like, I'm a veteran. I served eight years in the military. I have three deployments overseas. Veterans get guaranteed little to no interest home loans through the VA home loan program. We need to start something like that for everyday hardworking people in this country. That's what that's one thing that would would give so many people access into the ladders of home ownership. There's so many other things we can do, like fully funding all public housing associations or administrations across the country. Our housing sector has been decimated mm-hmm. to pay for war, has been decimated to pay for tax breaks for corporations. And part of that problem It's not just Republicans, it is corporate Democrats too, like my challenger, Yvette Clark. So uh, let's talk about some other issues because I saw, I checked your Twitter and uh, you're really active on Twitter and I saw you reacting to the possibility that the the Trump administration is looking into banning e-cigarettes, flavored e-cigarettes after six deaths. And you kind of compared that to the uh, number of deaths that have been caused by guns and the lack of movement on gun control. Expand on that. Absolutely. So six people have died from e-cigarettes, and that is a tragedy when anybody dies. But the fact that we have 30 plus thousand gun deaths a year in this country and Republicans are intransigent, they're not moving. The fact that 20 children were slaughtered in a classroom, concert goers were slaughtered, movie goers are slaughtered, people at a garlic festival are slaughtered. They're mown down like wheat in a field, and Republicans sit silent. That is a shame. So they can jump to ban e-cigarettes, but these weapons of war that are on our streets, nobody's doing anything. I've used these weapons mm-hmm. in combat, and I will tell you right now, there is absolutely, unequivocally, no reason a civilian should ever get their hands on these weapons. They're designed to kill as many people as possible, efficiently as possible. They're not for hunting, they're not for sport, they're not for self-defense. These things are weapons of war. And people play semantics where there's no such thing as an assault rifle or AR. Listen, I don't want to play semantics with people's lives. I want to save people's lives. If we can save just one life, 
then it is worth it. There is no reason that we should have these things on our streets. Let's talk, what about, uh, where do you stand on Medicare for All? This, I wanna be clear on this because there are a lot of politicians or people running for office saying mm -hmm. they want to grant access to Medicare or a pathway to, my Medicare for All is single payer in the elimination of private insurance. I'll tell you a story. My wife, love of my life, she has a condition. Every month, a nurse comes to our apartment to administer her medication. Her medication is $5,000 a month. Wow. She recently lost her job. They offered her COBRA for $1,400 a month. That is our rent. If it wasn't for the fact that I'm a veteran and I was able to get my wife on my VA healthcare, I don't know what we would have done. We do not need private insurance anymore. And this is not some novel concept. We are the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't offer their citizens or people in their country some form of guaranteed health care. The big insurance lobby has spent billions of dollars and pharmaceutical companies spent billions of dollars lobbying against this. We cannot keep going down this path. We spend more per capita than any other nation on health care. And this isn't some novel idea. We can look to the north, to Canada. We can look to our brothers and sisters to the east and to the west. They have done it. We can do it too. It's the fact that we have politicians like my member of Congress and Nancy Pelosi who are sitting on the sidelines and not vociferously coming out and championing single-payer health care. That's a solid answer. What about criminal justice reform? What, what, uh, what's high on your priority list when it comes to criminal justice reform? Well, first of all, we every, I'm in New York City, so everybody is probably known about the infamous Rikers Island. Mm -hmm. So 70% of people in Rikers Island have never been convicted of anything. 70% of prisoners in America haven't been convicted of anything. And forgive me, but I remember the Sixth Amendment says you have a right to a speedy trial. We have two million people in supposedly the freest country in the world languishing in prison right now. A lot of them are there for nonviolent drug offenses. We need to right now expunge everybody's record from a marijuana uh, a conviction. We need to let those people out and not only let those people out, but we need to invest and in reinvesting them into the community with job placement programs, schools, homes, because we can't just let them go and, and they have nothing to do. So th there's so much more we can do on criminal. We need to stop using our jails as in lieu of mental health facilities. A lot of people who are sitting in jails right now are there because they have mental health issues. How about we use the, the billions of dollars that we give to private industries, prison industries every year, and fund more mental health programs? And it's sad that it takes a 32-year-old guy like me to bring this stuff up. When we have people like my member of Congress who've been sitting there for over a decade and crickets, nothing, not, not hasn't said a thing about this stuff. All right, we only have uh, like 30 seconds left, right? But I want really quick to give you an opportunity to tell our viewers just a little bit about yourself because I think something cool about so many people that you haven't met before, people who are not career politicians, is that people come from backgrounds that a lot of people who they would be serving and supporting. Also, it's very similar. And you touched right. on being a veteran. You touched on your yes. wife a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, yeah, well, I'm 32 years old, um, son of Jamaican immigrants. Uh, we grew up a poor working class family. I'm one of 11 kids. Uh, when I got out of the army, I became a community organizer and an activist, and I've been doing that ever since. Um, that's about it. I just, every day, just trying to help my community. You know what I mean? I try to give back because I can't, I can't physically do what I used to do as a soldier, but I can't sit on the sidelines and allow, allow the country that I raised my hand for and swore an oath to, to go down the drain. 
So that's just me in a nutshell. I mean, if anybody wants to learn more, my full bio, Isaiah for Congress, I-S-I-A-H, for congress.com. You can go there and check it out, read the whole platform, everything. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for giving voice to people like me who are trying to, to buck the system. Isaiah, thank you so much for being here with us on the conversation tonight. This thank was a great conversation. Me. All right, uh, we'll be right back with another guest. And we're gonna have the director of a film, One Child Left Behind. And this is gonna be a good one, another good one. Stay with us. Hey there, welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas filling in tonight and so glad to be here. This next guest is director Jody Gomes. Good evening, Jody. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you here. Now, you directed um, One Child Left Behind, the untold story of the Atlanta teaching scandal. It's a documentary about the Atlanta test changing scandal. And before we get right into it, I think we have a clip of your trailer. Let's check it out. I had to make a decision to cheat or not to cheat. I made the wrong decision. It was one of the biggest scandals ever to rock American schools. There is a held belief. Pedro Nogueira talks about it as the normalization of failure. That means you don't think black students could learn. This was never about children. This was about a power grab for educational funds in the state of Georgia. The Republican governor says, let me take over these failing school districts. Well, the districts are failing because you're underfunding these schools by a billion dollars a year. The cheating scandal was not about education at all. It was about changing public perception of public schools. You made them distrust educators. Then you have to have other people come in to save them from themselves. We wanted to get at the truth. Now, were we interested in putting some of the higher-ups in jail? Yes, they needed to go to jail. There were 256,779 answers that were changed from the wrong answer to the right answer. The truth truly needs to be told. Don't put your blame on me. All right, Jody, so in case that people still need a little bit of a refresher, um, the scandal started with an investigation into teachers and principals allegedly changing wrong answers on standardized tests in Atlanta. That investigation started in 2009 and it ended. It's still kind of going on because I think some people are still going through the appeals process, if I'm correct, right? But uh, eventually 11 Atlanta educators were found guilty of RICO charges. And um, I wanna know why you even wanted to make this film. Well, you know, when I was working in Los Angeles, the headlines popped up that there were educators that were being criminalized mm -hmm. and convicted for 30 years. And that just didn't set right with me. I couldn't figure out, had they not murdered somebody? Had they not molested somebody? When I heard it was test cheating, it just didn't set right with me. So we wanted to do a deeper dive into the story. And what we found was many smoking guns. And the smoking guns that were huge to us was that there was some admitted cheating. Um, it wasn't system-wide like Atlanta reported and like the headlines reported, but there was certainly a lot of cheating. But it was the why that really struck me and struck a chord with me. The why was a lot of people were cheating because of no child left behind, which is a legislation that says if you don't pass end of the year state test, your schools will close, teachers would be fired. And for a lot of these underserved communities, the schools were a sanctuary. And the threat of closing those schools over statewide tests that 
quite frankly, didn't take into socioeconomics into account for these kids was just unfair. I think like I just even got chills thinking about that and how often that happens. Schools like schools that are mean a lot to the community, a lot of times in black communities are often underserved. They deal with, they struggle getting the funding necessary to support the kids. And then it seems like every year, 10 of those schools around you are up for debate on should they close? Should these kids go somewhere else? Um, should the school not exist in that neighborhood? So I know exactly what you're talking about. I wanna ask you, why do you think this um, scandal kind of blew up like it did? Like as far as what you learned, why did it become such a national story? Because from my understanding, this is something that happens countrywide. And it ended with teachers being facing charges that usually we hear about when we're thinking about the mafia. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think if you like any justice case and any social justice case, if you follow the money, mm-hmm. you find a story. And we did. We found a story of a governor, a Republican governor who wanted to take control of these schools. And basically, he ran up against a superintendent who was very independent and she was a change agent and she pushed back. You know, granted, there was a cheating scandal, but he tried to use the cheating scandal as a window and window dressing to take over the school district. And that school district had a half a billion dollars a year coming into it. And so when you follow the money, a lot of people got swept up underneath what was basically a political problem. And yes, there was cheating. And I I, I don't want that to go lightly said. There was cheating and cheating is not condoned by us or the film or even anybody in the school district. But at the same time, we had to get into the why and understand what these people were doing. Was there a mafia ring? You know, was this the equivalent of a sex trafficking ring? It wasn't. It was teachers pointing to the right answer or teachers unknowingly even going up to some of the students and giving them the right answer. But by and large, it was educators saying, I knew my kids in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade with a second grade reading level were not gonna pass that test. And so yes, we cheated on that one day of the year, but for the rest of the 10 months of the school year, we taught those kids remedial and we caught them up and we educated them. And that was a big message that we found that was never reported in the headlines, that there was a lot of educating going on, even though despite there was cheating going on. So. Talk more about those educators because were they reluctant or eager to tell their stories? Was it hard to get people to come out and be open about what happened? Absolutely not. You know, mm-hmm. at a certain point, we wanted to make sure that both the prosecution and the defense was equally represented in our film. But for the most part, by and large, like most cases, you only heard from the prosecution side throughout the entire case. We're sitting in the 10 year anniversary of when the case first broke off. And it was not hard to get people to tell their story on the defense side because they never testified at trial. They were never given a platform at any point in the last 10 years to actually tell their story. And where the film lives is there were certain people that cheated, but there were 12 individuals that went to trial. And those 12 individuals still to this day maintain their innocence. And a lot of them went to trial because they were uncomfortable taking a plea deal that was offered to them. And in that plea deal, not only did you have to admit to cheating yourself, which again, they maintain their innocence and say they did not cheat or instruct anybody to cheat, but you had to implicate somebody else in this plea deal. And so the person that they wanted implicated was the superintendent. And by and large, these 12 people, most of them had never even met this woman. They had only had maybe one or two phone calls with the superintendent and just felt 
thoroughly uncomfortable from a legal perspective taking a plea deal. So they rolled the dice, they went to trial, which they were fully entitled to do under the United States law. And unfortunately, with the machine that was behind the case, these 12 individuals, or I should say 11 individuals were found guilty. One was found not guilty. Were you surprised by anything that you learned while making this film? Absolutely. I was surprised at how much penalty was assessed to test cheating. I was surprised that the the cheating itself rose to the level of criminality that there were RICO charges. Now, RICO charges, as you said, are usually handled and used for the mafia or used for a widespread criminal organization. It was suggested that these teachers all knew each other and that they were cahooting together to cheat the system. Well, the 12 individuals that went to trial had never met each other until the night that they were arrested. So it wasn't possible for them to be a criminal organization. The other issue was I was knowingly surprised and admittedly surprised at those that did cheat and that did come on camera for the first time to admit their truth. You know, whether whether you like it or not, whether you like their excuse for cheating, they did own their truth. And you have to respect them for coming forward and telling you the why. You know, And that, again, is where the film lives. Wow, and there is another aspect of this, you know, the children, these students. Where do they stand at the end of all of this? Because you, know, you could ask who cheated them, who failed them, and it seems right. like everybody. You could, it could be politics, the standardized testing system, the, yes. uh, the administrators, some could say the teachers. Where do they stand now, you know? Well, you know, this was not a victimless crime. Uh -huh. and let's, let's not say that it was. Um, there were over 3,000 children that were caught up in the scandal and that had been cheated for the most part out of an education. But we opened the film on a 19 year old girl who at the time was still in the 10th grade trying to attempt to graduate. She was in the 10th grade at 19 years old. And still to this day, now she I think is 22 and still has not graduated. The standardized test didn't fail her, the educators didn't fail her. The entire US Department of Education failed this young lady because clearly before 2009, she was already left behind. And that's why the film is called one child, no, one child Left Behind, because one child left behind is too many, based on a law that's called No Child Left Behind. You know, what happened in her case and what's happening with many kids around the country, rather than being kept back, they're being pushed forward. And what people didn't understand about this particular test that was cheated on, unlike the Hollywood scandal that's happening right now, the CRCT and the milestone test does not measure the child's aptitude to pass them on to the next grade. What it measures and what it is an accountability standard for is to see how the school is doing and how well the educators are doing. So whether that child passed that test or not, or whether somebody cheated on the test for them or not, that child was still advanced to the next grade, even if that child failed, even if that child could not read at their grade level. And to me, that is a huge injustice. And at some point you have to ask the US Department of Education, what part and what part of culpability do you have in this entire equation for United States education failure? And I want to talk about something you just brought up because I was dying to ask you about this, the Hollywood test taking scandal. And we call it the Hollywood, but it really happened across the entire United States, colleges yes. across the United States. But it's being called the Hollywood college scandal because a couple of famous, a few famous actors, actresses were caught up in this. And I'm curious your thoughts and if you've gotten thoughts from some of the people who were able to sit down and participate in your film of the differences of the possibility. We're talking about, you know, 11 educators in Atlanta who are facing actual prison time, some who've already reported for their sentences and um, 
at least Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman, two famous actresses who quite possibly won't face any jail time. Well, from what I understand, Felicity Huffman is either facing or got charged with 30 days. Now, let me just give you an example how these educators in Atlanta were charged with RICO. You have to have a certain amount of money tied to the crime. Mm-hmm. For, for these 12 people, cumulative and collectively, there was $3,500 at stake that was transferred from federal funds over to their hands. $3,500. That's it. I'm sorry, but in the college scandal, somebody paid a half a million dollars for one child to pass the SAT test. We're talking about millions of dollars. Millions of dollars has changed hands. So the question becomes, will the punishment fit the crime in both cases? I don't think the punishment fit the crime in the Atlanta case. And I think the African-American, by and large, all female educators in Atlanta were made an example of. And I would like to see the same kind of equal punishment or lesser punishment for Atlanta because they're still under appeal and they're filing motions for new trials. But I would like to see the same type of punishment happen in both cases. If the educators in Atlanta have to maintain their their sentences, then there should be much stiffer penalties in the college scandal, shall we say. Well, Jody, when and where will we be able to watch One Child Left Behind? We're currently on the festival circuit and we're winning lots of awards for best documentary and lots of jury awards. You can see the trailer and you can see an extended preview on our website, which is onechildleftbehindmovie.com. But we're also encouraging educators and universities to actually host a screening in their local markets. And you can go on that same website, onechildleftbehindmovie.com, click on host a screening and find out the details so that we can come to your market with the film, with the cast, with myself and do a Q&A and have deeper conversations in every particular market as to how you can avoid this. Because this film is a cautionary tale about high stakes testing and the perils of disadvantaged schools. And everywhere that we screen, we were in Denver recently and several non-ethnic principals came up to me after watching the film and hearing the story of one of how one of our principals was railroaded. He said, you know, I think I have a problem at my school. I don't know that we're deliberately cheating, but I don't know that we're not cheating. And will I be held accountable for that which I don't know? I don't know if my people are cheating or not. And he said, will I face criminal charges? The question and answer is very valid, but the answer is if it happened in Atlanta, it can happen in any city in the United States. Jody Gomes, director of One Child Left Behind and of so many other famous works. People should definitely look into you and everything that you've created. I'm happy to meet you. This was a great conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for the conversation. And that's it for me on the conversation this week. Tomorrow is debate night, so it's going to be a good night. We've got post game coming up. Malcolm, the Friday post game. Malcolm is in for today's post game, Friday on a Wednesday or something like that. I don't know. Stay tuned. I'm Brooke Thomas. Thanks for watching.